Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Luke 6, verses 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with a measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but... Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Father, I I beg that you give to me the grace to unfold this portion of this glorious sermon of your eternal Son. That I do it accurately. That I allow it to speak clearly through me. That we hear and our minds be active, but more than anything, may your Holy Spirit cause our hearts to gravitate, to be moved by, to apply and to experience the joy of this text to the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. One of the most beloved characters in the Bible for many of us is King David. His prayers, his psalms have ways of resonating with our hearts. I think most of us would love it to be said of us. He, in some ways like David, a man or a woman after God's own heart. But how many times have we found that we're also like David in ways we wish we weren't. You remember the story. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. He is implicitly murders her husband Uriah. Nathan the prophet is sent to him. He says, David, I have a story for you. There's this rich man who had land and houses and cattle. 
sheep. And there's a poor man who had almost nothing, but he had one little lamb who, who, who wasn't for eating for him. This lamb was like a child to him. And one day, visitors came to the rich man. And so, he's going to open his house and feed his guest. And he goes and he strips that one lamb from the poor man and slaughters it to feed his guests. And David is furious. And he says, quote, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die because he had no pity. And Nathan looks at him. And says, Joe, uh, David, you're the man. That is a mirror to the temptation of our hearts. Even though David's sin, in the text in Second Samuel makes it clear, his sin before God was much greater than this guy's sin to his neighbor. He was blinded to that reality. How often do we fail to be in touch with our own brokenness socially, inter, interpersonally, in relationships? We all come from broken, dysfunctional families and we just walk around blinded to that but easily see and indict and try and convict and condemn other people for the same offenses. In this passage this morning, Jesus is saying to everyone who has been born again, to he's speaking to, stop it. Stop the non-understanding, judgmental, condemning so quickly and easily of others. Now, as we look at the text, I want you to remember now, last week, this is really, we're right in the middle of a big sermon. Because last week, I spent the whole sermon with verse 37. Judge not, and you won't be judged. Explaining what Jesus does not mean. So, here it is in 12 seconds. Again, from last week. He does not mean suspend your faculty of discernment between good and evil, right and wrong. He does not mean don't use your moral compass to evaluate not only yourselves, but others in life. That's an impossibility. And we saw that the Bible clearly charges us to do such a thing. So, that sermon, if you haven't heard it, it is online. The reason I say that, everything else I'm going to say now is in the context of, I hope, the clarity of last week. And so, let's go to our text. See verse 37? We need to move back at least a verse to get the context here. Of what does he mean by do not judge, do not condemn? Well, 
right before that, remember the passage. It's all one sermon. Jesus is talking about love your enemies. And, and he sums it up in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful to you. In other words, only those who have tasted of God's mercy toward their sin against Him in Jesus Christ, only they can show this kind of mercy to others. Because it is only they who know themselves really as sinners who deserve God's eternal judgment. If a church goer does not understand that about him or herself, it is evidence that they do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, it's all I offer to my Christianity. I was a God belittling sinner. It's all I offer. And God's perfect, pure, just, impending wrath hung over my head for years. And then, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us believers, or Cholome, e even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the great news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That the eternal second person of the Trinity became a genuine human being to live my life perfectly for me and to die as my sins were imputed to Him. To bear the wrath of God against me. And He did it for me. And He removed my guilt. And He made me alive one day in Christ back in 1981. And forgiveness towards me was applied and is applied and will constantly be applied. Is that true of you? If you love Christ, it's true of you. Now, Here's the temptation for, yes, even us sinners who have been born again, who have come to faith in Christ throughout our life until death, the temptation when someone, a loved one, close friend or not, strikes you, stuns you by their sin against you. And we feel I want justice. 
I want her to pay. In those moments, we can all relate to that, right? Look at me, sinners. Okay. Stop and ask the question. What if God gave to me justice apart from the mercy He has given to me through Jesus Christ? Those sinners, all of us right now who are on this planet, who have received God's mercy in and through the application by the Spirit of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, are called to extend mercy down here horizontally to other sinners. Particularly the ones who infect, affect, hurt, or afflict us. That's what he means. Be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. Okay. So how? What, what does this mean? The answer is our text this morning. Verses 37 to 42 is the answer. Don't, he says, this is what I mean by being merciful, don't be judgmental, condemning, but be forgiving. Giving. Because it is those people who show that fruit who are proving that they are genuine disciples of Jesus. So, let's look at it. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So, so far, what Jesus clearly means here by judge not, He further defines by don't condemn. So, by judging others, He means looking down upon Others and their actions attributing motives to them and with this condemning spirit about you. Disposition about you. It comes from the I would never do that. Really? Do you understand the grace of God? It comes from the I totally apart from God, am better than him or her. It comes from self-righteousness. To judge someone in this context means to convict them, to sentence them, to, to, to condemn them. And that stems from the desire to get even. It stems from the desire, I wish God your judgment would strike them now. Jesus illustrates this type of judgment later on in Luke. If in Luke 18, you remember what Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee prays this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You know what Jesus said at the end. This guy went away unforgiven. The tax collector, woe is me, have mercy on me, a sinner. That guy went away justified. The Pharisee didn't. He doesn't get the gospel. He's judging. He's condemning. He's looking down on the other as not as good as or as worthy as he is. Judgmentalism that Jesus is forbidding here is the opposite of compassion. It's the opposite of getting it as a sinner. It's the opposite of be merciful as your Father is merciful. Now, don't misunderstand this type of mercy or this type of non-judgmentalism. It sees clearly. It loves truth. It calls a spade a spade. It calls sin. Sin. But the difference is in how it compares itself with the other person who's sinning. The difference is the disposition with which or in which that person deals with the sinning person. In other words, judgmentalism is absolutely without the mercy, verse 36, calls for. It's pompously putting itself in the place of God. And if that is a a habitual pattern in a person's life, it is a bad sign of spiritual death. Notice the two clauses that, that follow each of the commands in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. You don't want to be judged that way, do you? 500 years ago, Martin Luther concisely summed this up this way. Dost thou publish his sins? Then truly thou art not a child of your merciful Father. For otherwise, thou wouldest be also as He. Merciful. It is certainly true that we cannot show as great mercy to our neighbor as God has to us, but it is the true work of the devil that we do the very opposite of mercy, which is a sure sign that there is not a grain of mercy in us. Now, at the end of verse 37, Jesus goes on further to define this mercy by saying, Forgive. 
and you will be forgiven. Now, see, let's follow the context. In this passage where the context is saying that it's a heart issue with us disciples of Jesus, a heart issue of not being judgmental, of not having a condemning spirit, but forgive. Therefore, forgiveness here, I'm, I'm, I'm just convinced he's talking about something that has a whole lot more to do with us, the disciple, than with the offender who may need the forgiveness. Because that's the context. In other words, know that he's saying to us in our experiences of life, of pain and anger and hurt, that a pardoning spirit, disposition, is not optional. Now, we are not to extend verbal forgiveness to an offending party if they haven't admitted they're wrong. If they have not said, forgive me, I've sinned against you, would you forgive me? He's not calling us to do that. Even God doesn't do that. His point here is that you must be that person, even when that doesn't happen, where you release the person to God. You release the person personally from your anger and your offense, and that you are heart ready to extend verbally forgiveness the moment they ask you for it. That's really good news. Because whether a person who has so sinned against us ever admits it and asks you for your forgiveness, you're not bound. We can be free from the cancer of bitterness and just be thrilled if that moment comes I've sinned against you would you forgive me yes so one more thing when he says forgive and you will be forgiven hmm I, I, don't do I just want to peel back the first two weeks that I have been in this, this sermon on the plain. First two sermons. Significant parts of sermons, I just pounded the point. Do not misread and turn Jesus' words backwards from the larger context of what we've seen in Luke. In other words, when he says forgive and you will be forgiven, there is a sense in which the future, you, it's there. And there's a sense in which it will be based upon the fruit of God's mercy. Causing you to be born again and to embrace Christ and to be sanctified. But, don't ever think that means your forgiveness for your sins comes by means of your Meriting it through the work of forgiving others. In other words, 
His command, forgive and you will be forgiven, is grounded on the fact that when God's grace saves a person, they come to faith. At that instant, they're justified forever. It is grounded on the fact that when God does that to any of us sinners, that changes us. And the evidence of that heart change is not a perfect disposition. But it's a genuine disposition of forgiving others. That's why only a person who has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them through regeneration, through new birth, Holy Spirit dwells in them. Only a person who has actually embraced Christ is part of the church of Christ, universal, can pray and is meant to pray the Lord's Prayer. The part where He says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In other words, why? Because the power and the motive to pray that or to actually experience doing that is God's prior mercy in saving you. Of course I'll forgive. That's what text is reaching out. See, the question in the way Jesus forms this to all of us professing Christians and churchgoers is this. Are you really alive in Christ? Do you really have genuine saving faith? In other words, is the evidence of forgiving others is it there? That's the question. And that's what Jesus means right after the Lord's Prayer where He says in Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The point is simply this. True Christians, those who have come to personally embrace Jesus by the miracle of new birth, the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and to come into that reality can and they and they do forgive. Now, this does not mean that we don't sin. It does not mean that we don't struggle with forgiving another. It doesn't mean we don't battle against bitterness from pain and hurt or even hatred. It doesn't mean that genuine Christians will never be so stunned and shocked at the pain that another close person may inflict that they cannot forgive this week or this 
quarter of the year. They battle. It is to say that with the Spirit of Christ in them, having forgiven them so much, they work at forgiving. And eventually, they do. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 38 and says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Just briefly, some of you are probably in my boat. I have often heard this text over 30 years of Christianity be used to extract money from people for ministry. It's not what it's about. It's not the context. So here's Jesus. He's using an an analogy they all know. You you go down to the marketplace and you're going to buy grain. And the guy selling grain has a a measure. Okay, so how much are good? Pours the grain in the measure and then presses it down. You can get more in that way. Shake it. Fills all the empty air pockets in there. And then you pour more and you press it down and you shake and you get more and more grain in there. And then he pours more and it overflows the top. And then you take from your robe, you make it into a pocket and he dumps it into your lap. Jesus is saying, God has been so overflowingly merciful to you. He knows he's going to the cross. So give! And He will constantly be overflowingly merciful to you. Now whether it's rewards in heaven, whether it's the evidence there, whether it's both, whether all that's happening, how much is on earth, I don't, I don't know. But here's His main point. You don't ever have to worry about being too giving. With your mercy. You cannot outgive. God. Go ahead and give. And it will be given to you. Like that guy over in the marketplace. Don't trouble yourself with it. And then Jesus goes on to illustrate how we are to go about it in verses 39 to 42. Let's take first verses 39 and 40 together. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Okay, so here he is. Not a different context. It's just one sermon flowing right out of Don't be judgmental. Don't be condemning. Forgive. Give. He's saying, examine yourselves, disciples, because if you're blind to your own sinfulness and your desperate need of mercy, you cannot lead others to where to find the true forgiveness. 
Disciples, because this is how it was in those days, disciples, rabbis had, there, wasn't, there weren't books. You've got to understand it. Very few books. There's no printing press. They're extremely expensive. You learn from your teacher by hanging with him for weeks and months and years and listening and memorizing sayings. Okay, So, you're never going to be greater than your rabbi, your teacher, or Jesus. But Jesus is saying, disciples, you can be like me. And he's already shown so far throughout Luke, hasn't he? That people could not believe. What are you doing hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus is saying, you can be like me. The mercy that he would extend to the lowest of society. Now, I'm going to come to the the, the last part and the other parable Jesus is going to give us or a straightforward lecture in a little bit. Because what he's going to do there is the application. You like application in sermons? What do we do? Because I do. Because if we're hearing this text rightly, part of me cried, how? This is not a joke. I mean, let's get real. The big problem that we are faced with in the Christian life. The life of sanctification from new birth to the grave is anger. Particularly anger at those who have sinned against us. Here's the application. It's real simple and then we'll say it 14 other different ways. The biblical solution to that problem is feeding upon the reality of the gospel. It is feeding upon the gigantic, humongous, infinite mercy God has shown you in Jesus Christ. That's it. Okay, but okay, easier said than done. I'm so angry right now. And we're like Peter. I'm going to turn. If you want to turn, you can turn or you can just listen. I'm going to turn to Matthew 18. We can be like Peter so often. Okay, Jesus, what are you saying? How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? And you know what Jesus says. No. No, Peter. No, believer. Seventy times seven. Okay. Jesus didn't stop. Then he went on to tell a parable to help Peter and to help us. You remember the parable? There's a guy, there's the king, his master, and this guy has gotten in debt. And, and Jesus on purpose. It's a parable. It's a story. He uses an absurd number. What he essentially says is what we, we do as kids. This guy owed gazillions of dollars. It's really it. I mean, it, the, the, the amount that he put is so astronomical, it's impossible to pay back. And then you pick up in Matthew 18, verse 25, and Jesus goes on. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold. And his wife and his children 
and all that he had and payment to be made. And so, that poor guy, that servant, fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for the man, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's stunning. What is more stunning is that Jesus isn't done with the parable. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a, a hundred denarii. Just, you can pay this back. Three months wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Okay, let's just stop here for a moment. Got to get Jesus' point. Because he means, he means to make us happy with his command. Forgive 70 times 7, Peter. Don't you get it? This is his point. That the forgiveness in this parable is as big, it is as spectacular, it is as glorious as the debt that is forgiven. And the debt that any of us sinners in Christ owe is Unpayable. It's impossible. And the stunning thing about Jesus' parable is that this guy did not actually experience the forgiveness for what it was. The reason that we know that is because the forgiveness of his debt did not change his Anger toward the one who owed him a debt. But instead, out of judgmental, condemning anger, he threw him in prison. And just read on now. The response of the king that Jesus tells us about is sobering. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Flashback. 
have mercy. He's your Father. He's merciful. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. Jesus closes his parable there. But then, then he makes a comment. He draws a conclusion from the story to Peter and us disciples saying this. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The point Jesus is making there is the same that we see in our text in verse 38 at the end. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. His, this is the point. It's the point throughout Paul. It's the point throughout the New Testament. It's the point throughout the Gospels and Jesus' words. That when we claim to be in Christ or to love Him or to, to, to know Him, to have been saved by Him, to have been forgiven and justified by Christ, but there is no forgiveness in us towards others, literally none, constantly, ongoingly, habitually, then it's just evidence. That His forgiveness is not ours. That's what He's saying. Now, but again then, don't miss the powerful, practical, helpful point that Jesus is giving to us into Peter. Because remember, He told the parable in response to Peter, how many times do I have to forgive? Come on! It hurts! Seventy times seven, Peter. And so he tells a parable. And his point is, dear church, the solution to dealing with your anger at injustices, injustices done to you by others is to live in the overwhelming amazement of how much you actually have been forgiven in Jesus Christ forever. That's his answer. The gospel is the part of every aspect of our life. Never assume the gospel. Never assume the implications of Christ coming to die and suffer the wrath of God that you deserve forever. Now, as we come to the closing, let's take that reality into the last counsel that Jesus gives us here in Luke chapter 6, verses 41 to 42. So, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log that is in your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Okay, just get the picture. 
here's life. Bam! I mean, you're terribly wounded by the sin of another. Jesus says, wake up here. That's real. That's sin. And it is as if it is a speck in his or her eye compared to your sin against God. That's where I think he's going. The log that is in your eye. Now you've got to get log. I mean, you know what supporting beams are in a house? You know, big 8 by 10s or whatever. Huge. It's, it's, they're probably giggled. Jesus is being humorous. He's driving home a point. You've got this big 8 by 10 log hanging out of your eye. And they've got some sawdust in, in theirs. He says, your perspective is totally wrong. Can you remember the context? The beam in our eye is this self-righteous, judgmental anger that refuses to forgive. Now, when Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to actually help and take out the speck from your brother's eye, when he says it, so again, let's make last week said again. He's showing that it is necessary to make judgments. To call a spade a spade. To make judgments about the speck that is in your brother's eye. To be helpful. But what changes that loving, merciful, tender helpfulness? Let me help you get that out of your out of your eye and turns that into condemning judgmentalism that Jesus is forbidding here is the failure to see the log in our eye. Now, okay, that's why I went to Matthew because I think the best way to see what he's saying is that. Just what we just saw in Matthew. That's the log! Somehow acting and living and forgetting the reality of your gazillions of dollars of log debt in the way you're treating this person. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying to us. The heart of Jesus' meaning is that when we see the log in our eye, it incorporates that we believers know how to get the log out. How to take care of the reality of our sin. Which is no other way than through and in Jesus. In the Gospel. In His work on the cross. In our constant life of repentance and sanctification. And I think the more some of us get older and older, and if we're, by God's grace, constantly walking with Him, you realize, yeah, I might be in my little bit more holy in something? Maybe, maybe not. But what you feel is this. More sinful. The Word of God has a way of cutting and causing us to see sin we never saw before. That is sanctification. That is the way to walk. Taking out the log is constantly... Get out the log of your forgetting who you are and what you deserve. And how much you've been forgiven. The point of Jesus' words about judging here in Luke 6 
are to show us how to take the anger of judgmentalism out of our heart in that situation, in the other situation. And it is by a broken and contrite heart that is in touch with reality of your sin and thus gloriously in touch with the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is to live in the consciousness of the eternal debt that you have been forgiven in Jesus. That the cross, as I opened up earlier in prayer, didn't just purchase your salvation. If somehow you can add to that work and you and God save each yourself, He purchased your new birth. He purchased your ongoing sanctification. He purchased your trials. He purchased your experiences of pain from other people so that this text would be manifestly working itself out in your life and that He would be the one working it out by His Spirit. Because He bought that also. And as that is happening, Jesus is saying, the removal of the log debt, oh yes, in those moments, we cannot help but be merciful as our Father is merciful. And then help each other, the brother. Let me help you with that speck. Boy, do I know. I've had, oh man, can I tell you about different speck experiences of mine? Let's let's get this taken care of. So, we do discern. We do judge. We do hate evil and ought to. We have standards. The Bible gives us standards of right and wrong in our families, in the local church, in society. But all of this is governed by mercy in our personal dealings with others. And that means the obliteration of judgmental self-righteousness in the handling of others around us. Let's pray. Father, into Your hands we commit our lives to the eternally loving process of sanctification, holiness, and a demonstration in our own lives of the cross by being able to show mercy in some of the most bizarre and extreme situations. Would you glorify yourselves in each and every one of us this way in ways we can't dream of in the coming months and years. Amen.